before we start our sermon. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. Well, we are entering into a section here in this latter part of John 12 that we're going to break into three different sermons under the heading of True Triumph, which might be up there. Maybe we're having PowerPoint. There we go. True Triumph. And uh, this week we're going to see true triumph expressed through humility, or perhaps it'd be better to say the humility that is to be found in the true triumph of Christ. You know, this, this passage is so visually striking if we really stop and think about it. It doesn't seem odd to us to imagine Jesus with his long flowy brown hair and his long beard and his white robe sitting on a donkey, you know, probably holding his hand something like this and the paintings that we imagine in our minds that, that give a very religious picture and we go, oh yes, Jesus meek and lowly and he's riding on a donkey. It might not strike us as quite the picture of humility that he's trying to express until we think about maybe somebody like George Washington. Again, if you have that painting, that renaissance kind of painting in your head of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, I would invite you to put in your head the picture of George Washington and paintings that you've seen of that guy going into battle, you know, crossing the Delaware, standing on the boat with that excellent victory pose that he does or so many others of him riding his horse. He actually had two horses um, that were among his favorites. One was called Blueskin, which was, of course, a white horse, as you would guess. Blueskin, the white horse, and then Nelson, the brown horse. So if, you, if you've seen or if you're familiar with some of the paintings of our first president, uh, most of them include Blueskin, the white horse. That's the one that you'll see because he's a white horse. I mean, there's even some biblical properties to that, right? If we think of Christ coming in his second coming with the riding on a white horse, I mean, it's a powerful image to portray. Here is the president of the United States, the grand general of the Continental Army. I don't think he was called the grand general, but he was something like that, right? Anyhow, usually you see the horse blue skin. Um, you don't see Nelson as much. You do see Nelson sometimes. He was, he was a brown horse and, and rather normal looking. Um, he often, when you see him in paintings, you see him kind of in the background. Um, but the emphasis so much um, that artists chose to use, whether Washington in that moment that is being depicted was actually riding blue skin or not, they wanted to use blue skin because the horse was so majestic. And it communicated victory. Now I want you to imagine, as you've got these two paintings in your head, I want you to flip them around a little bit. You can see Jesus on a white horse, perhaps, more easily, Right? because we have the biblical picture in the book of Revelation. 
But can you imagine George Washington riding into battle on a donkey? How effective would that be? Have you guys seen a donkey in real life before? Are they the majestic war machine of the Continental Army or of any army at any time in history? Certainly not. And yet, what happens in this passage is just this. Your Bible, if you have the ESV or perhaps the NIV or some others, will say this. There's little headings above passages, and the ESV says the triumphal entry. And in Jesus' triumph, there's a very serious message of humility that's being, that's being communicated through his actions, but not quite being received by the people around him in the way that perhaps he thinks it ought to be. We notice in this passage first a very big shift in Jesus' public relations. If you remember all the way back to John chapter 6, and this is something we should do when we're reading our Bibles. We should be thinking not just context to the passage we're looking at today, but context of the entire book. So go back in your minds with me to John chapter 6, and you can feel free to turn there if you like. But this is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000. Do you remember the response of the crowds? Did they say, hey, thank you very much. We'll be off on our way back to our normal everyday lives. Or did they go up to him, and as John reports to us, that Jesus perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him their king? And what does Jesus do? Does he say, yes, crown me with many crowns. You finally realized who I am. You've recognized my right place. I ought to be the king. I ought to be in charge. He doesn't do that at all. He, in fact, runs the opposite direction, puts his disciples in a boat, kicks the boat off into the sea, and says, I'll see you out there. And then he's gone. The crowds then find him on the other, other side of the lake, and they go, when did you get here? We've been looking for you. Jesus then proceeds in a short little message, a short teaching, um, that ends with, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. To which many of those five to six to seven to eight to nine to 10,000 people would have said, ew, that's disturbing, really weird, very uncomfortable. And even biblically, we know we are not supposed to drink blood. I'm out of here. There are times where Jesus intentionally shrinks his crowd. Can you imagine going to church on a Sunday morning and if I stood up here and I was like, okay, all of you wearing white shoes, just get out. All of you that, that voted a certain way, all of you that drive this kind of car, all of you that do, if, if, if I just separated you by some seemingly arbitrary reason, it would seem very antithetical. It would seem very opposite to the goal, right? The point is we'd like to have people come to worship, not come and then feel like they need to leave. But that's what happened in John chapter 6. And now, something very different happens. As we read weeks ago, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This, this news has not gone away, and it will not yet go away as we study the Gospel of John for a couple more passages here. You see this in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him is that they had heard that he had done the sign. Now, when the crowd shows up, and many commentators believe that this crowd would have also been made up of many of those that might have eaten the bread in John chapter 6. But it's also made up of people from every 
corner of the known earth at the time because the Jews had been scattered from the dispersion earlier in the Old Testament. You can read about that. And many of them came back to Jerusalem when the, the land was freed, but many of them stayed. And so for Passover, which this is the beginning of, many of them were coming into town and they were hearing, hey, this isn't just like any other Passover. The man that is coming to Jerusalem, that one riding on a donkey, that one who makes us think of Zechariah chapter 9, he raised somebody from the dead last week. No. No one can do that. Yeah, and you know what? It was Lazarus, and I talked to his sisters. He was dead for four days. Three days. They buried him. And he had somebody roll away the, the, the stone and called him out. You can imagine this, of course, is going to heighten the crowd. So this is, in one sense, the biggest crowd that Jesus has had yet, as we've seen it. In fact, Josephus... Uh, historian and a, a Jewish historian who writes around the time of the life of Jesus mentions that at that time in Jerusalem there could have been upwards of 2.7 million people that's that's full to overflowing that's you know Joseph and Mary coming in looking for a room in the hotel and there's nothing at all because it's packed because people come for Passover to Jerusalem and many if not most of or perhaps even all of them are out trying to get a glimpse, rows behind of the road that they say the guy's coming on. I, I've heard of Jesus. I, I don't know too much about him. But things have shifted because, as you saw in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And then John quotes from Zechariah. But let's, let's note here that when John tells us Jesus found a young donkey, he wasn't just saying, hey, let's go down this way. Oh, look, a donkey. Huh. If you remember from the other Gospels, I think it's, I believe it's Matthew that records that Jesus actually sends his disciples out to get a donkey for him, right? He is intended to do this. So the public relationship is very intentional. He doesn't happen upon a donkey. He doesn't happen to have these huge crowds. He has planned for it. And yet, do you get the air of misunderstanding from the crowd? Christ's humility is highlighted on his way to triumph. And his humility is highlighted in a couple different ways. First of all, he comes in riding on a donkey, which would not have been an undignified thing to do. No one would have looked at him and said, what, what a lowly and embarrassing thing to do. But when we combine that with the palm branches that are being waved in verse 13 that you're being waved in a way of symbolizing a welcoming of a conquering king as though the king has already come in and conquered and has been victorious. You know, you don't welcome in a king who's going to do something. You welcome in a king who has done something. And yet in this case, they are welcoming in someone they want to make king and they want to make do something. Is that confusing enough for you? The palm branches are for you are victorious. We're celebrating what you've already done. But in this case, from the perspective of the crowds, Jesus hasn't done what they really want him to do yet, which is to come for combat, to come and conquer, to conquer the false king, Herod, who isn't even a Jew. What is he doing on the throne? And then even more importantly, Rome. Who is Rome against a person who can raise the dead? Their understanding of the one to whom they would wave these palm branches is that he is clothed with divine authority. 
That is the expression, that is the motivation behind the waving of these palm branches that we see in the passage. So that combined with this donkey, which clearly is a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, um, verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read those. You can follow along if you wish or just listen. Oh, boy, please don't feel like, oh, my goodness, he said that thing before the sermon. I have to look at every single passage or he's going to, no, don't feel that way. Just the beginning. That's the most important thing. Feel free to just listen with these ones. Zechariah chapter 9, the context of all of this Old Testament passage from 500 B.C., 500 years earlier than what we read in John 12, is a matter of peace coming by God's judgment and that it's coming through a humble shepherd king. Listen to verses 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. There is so much in that passage that you can unpack. You could have an amazing afternoon getting some commentaries, getting some better sermons to listen to, whatever, and just unpacking the gold mine of that passage. I intentionally avoided doing that this week, lest we move from the Gospel of John and say, guess what, we're doing a sermon series on Zechariah. There's so much there, but that is what's going on in the minds of those that are waving the palm branches. Our king is coming to us. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey. He's coming in peace, but he's also coming to cut off the chariot from Ephraim. He's coming to cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. Remember that picture, again, Washington on his horse, Blueskin, in all of his majesty and glory. Can you imagine him riding in with all of his armies and meeting the other army that is led by a humble man on a donkey. That message doesn't portray, I'm here to kill you. That message portrays, I'm here to make peace. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. His humility is highlighted on his way to triumph on purpose. He calls us to follow him in that and bear witness to the humble one, just as we saw those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Boy, they couldn't stop talking about Lazarus being raised after that point. It's, uh, John reports to us again in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called the Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. I mean, at that point, this is kind of like old news. We're getting set up for what is Jesus going to do next? But they kept talking about it. This is another one of those passages, as we've seen a couple times recently, that we've read and we've heard nothing out of the mouth of Jesus. So his teaching is coming through this action of riding on the donkey, riding in in victory, riding in to bring peace, certainly riding to judgment. But the judgment isn't going to fall on Herod. The judgment isn't going to fall on Jerusalem. The judgment isn't going to fall on Rome. The judgment of God that's going to bring peace is going to fall on the Son of God himself. That is not the expectation of the crowd at all. When they see him humbly riding on a donkey, they have a hope of peace, but they totally miss the means by which the peace is going to come. That he is riding into town and riding not to a throne, but to a wooden cross. This is incredible as we look forward. 
Jesus' actions stand in stark contrast to the interpretation of nearly everyone around him. His rule is bringing peace. It's bringing it through grace, through humility, through the kind offering of himself in the place of his people. This passage, if we were to read it as a daily devotional, you know, giving it that, that bit of time that you do in the morning, right? Like on your good days where you slow down a little bit, you say, I read it and everything. You might sit here and go, I got no idea about what this calls me to confess or repent of. I think, I think it's just encouraging. I think it's just a reminder. Our Lord is, is coming. He's, he's going to come again. He's going to come not on the donkey the second time. He is going to come on the white horse. He's going to show up on blue skin only, you know, times a thousand. He's going to be the true triumphant king that we expect and that we understand through all of this. And yet, there still is a call for us to examine our own hearts. Because all of the parties viewing Jesus, both the disciples and the crowds and even the Pharisees, in their, in their thinking, in their proclaiming, and in their sorrow, there's a lot of stuff that we can wrestle with in our own hearts. You know, I didn't really explain to you the sermon outline. Um, what you have is basically what I use every week to build my sermons. And this is where, oh my goodness, it's just a little bit embarrassing. I'm so glad the sermon was about humility. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it this week, I bet. But um, basically, my sermon breaks down into four words that start with C. It's a call at the beginning. That's what we just finished. That is, this is what the passage is calling us to. That's why you have that, that mention of humility there. Christ's glory reveals the truth about humility and welcomes us to share in his triumph over our sin. That's the call. And then we get the conflict. Okay, so whereas before you were supposed to uh, just listen to truth, now we need to face our sin. Now we face the conflict. And the problem is that humility doesn't naturally draw praise from our hearts. Again, those that are observing Jesus are seeing triumph, and they're missing the humility. And if the humility was all that was being portrayed, it wouldn't have drawn the crowds that it drew it wouldn't have hit the minds of the disciples the way it did, and it certainly would have changed the attitudes of the Pharisees. Do you remember in the intertestamental period, that is the time between Old and New Testament, that there was this event that instituted what is basically, if not the only Jewish holiday we ever really think about or know about, Hanukkah. Um, this happened in just uh, 168 BC, uh, Judas Maccabee, uh, when Antiochus Epiphanes was ruling uh, the, the Roman Empire um, and, and Hellenizing everything, that is, he was making everybody be more Greek. And that included everything. It wasn't just how you dressed or what, you, how you, what language you spoke. It was also who you worshipped. Well, Judas Maccabee is one who rose up as a uh, sort of guerrilla warfare leader in his day um, and took on the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes and actually defeated them. Um, winning what was most essentially boiled down to religious freedom. Jesus Maccabee didn't ride into Jerusalem on a horse, or, or on a donkey, rather on a horse. He rode off to war. People knew very clearly what he had come to do, and he did it. And it's very likely that some in the crowd here might be thinking back to that event and thinking, is this another Judas Maccabee moment? Are we about to be a part of this? And many of them that were thinking that that might happen, they were ready for it to happen. I mean, you kind of imagine, I don't know literally or not, but, but you kind of imagine they're sitting there with their swords 
you know, their hands on the handle of their sword, ready, like at any moment. Give the word, Jesus. We're ready. Where are we going? Herod? Are we going to Rome? Where are we going? Let's go. We're behind you. If Jesus would have said, hey, ditch the donkey, give me a horse, the story could have been very, very different. The disciples, of course, in verse 16, are the first that uh, John mentions as far as uh, this, these reactions that uh, miss the humility and, and are focused other, in other places. Verse 16 says that Jesus' disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples and their discernment didn't have it at that time. They didn't quite discern what was really going on. And what was the key that they needed? The glory of Christ. The glorified action that, was happened, that would happen to Jesus. They were probably thinking more along the lines of, let's get ready to get some swords and spears and go off. And, I mean, victory is at hand, Right? You have the disciples and their discernment in verse 16 and verses 17 and 18. You have the crowds and their true concern. The palm branches were being waved. You're a victorious king. We want to share in your victory. And what were they crying out? Hosanna. Which just simply means, oh Lord, save. It was a prayer. Hosanna, save us. And, and as those voices were lifted up, each individual voice would have had a very specific experience in mind, but certainly there was a unity of we are oppressed, we are not truly free. And we're looking to this man in all of his triumphant entry and expecting that he will come in and free us from the Romans, from Herod, from my crippling debt, from my broken relationships in my life, from whatever. You know, all those things were wrapped up and they were just going to say, here, save us from this stuff. They quoted Psalm 118, verse 26, where it literally says the same thing they said. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This word blessed is the Greek word uh, eulogio. Can you imagine what word in English we get from that one? It's eulogy. Uh, literally translating to good speech. It's what you do at a funeral. You deliver a eulogy. You try to say good things about the person who has passed away. And it's fascinating that as they are praising and celebrating and welling up with hope, it's fascinating that they, they eulogio Jesus in this moment, who is not going off to the victory that they anticipate, but is going to victory. And in fact, because he is going to lay down his life, a eulogy seems kind of appropriate, doesn't it? The disciples and their discernment, the crowds and their concern, the Pharisees and their failure. Look at verse 19. This is probably my favorite part. I love to see the, the Pharisees admit when they've failed, right? It's just, it's a feel-good verse. Somebody should make this their life verse. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their perception is all about numbers. Of the 2.7 million people that were present in Jerusalem, they saw basically there was nobody left for them. There was nobody for them to boss around anymore. Jesus was in charge. Specifically, when they say to each other, you see that you're gaining nothing, they're referring all the way back to chapter 11, verse 57. All the way, it wasn't that long ago. After Jesus had raised Lazarus, says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And now, <laughs> they're looking out after that. They say, if you know where Jesus is, you tell us. 
we're going to arrest him. And everybody, okay, Pharisees, all right, all right, all right. And then just days later, they're over here, and Jesus is riding in. Everybody's celebrating. Who of the Pharisees is going to go out and say, there he is, get him, right? That would be like a death wish. Can you imagine all those eyes that are looking on Jesus with hope, looking back at you and going, arrest him? Are you kidding me? Do you know who this guy is? I mean, the Pharisees could be trampled to death. Kind of terrifying for that, that moment for them. Their perception is failure, and in one sense, they're right, but they're not right in the right way. They're right that they will fail against Jesus. But they're wrong in understanding it simply as a matter of numbers. The disciples and their lack of discernment, the crowds and their misplaced concerns, the Pharisees and their misperceived failure. False conceptions abound in this passage, but they also abound for us today, don't they? We misunderstand what triumph really is. We take Bible verses like, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? But what does it mean? Does it mean that when a problem happens in my life, I'm going to conquer it by making the problem into something wonderful and everything's going to be smooth and easygoing? I'm going to ride like Jesus on a donkey through the whole of my life. Smooth sailing, everything's going to be fine. So often we take verses like that and others. You know, one, one very popular one from Philippians, of course, is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Have you seen the, I probably mentioned this before, but have you seen the uh, UFC fighter who has that tattooed on his arm? Because uh, there is one. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. I've never seen him fight, actually, but it, I imagine it would be a little bit humorous to see him fight and say in his mind, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as he roundhouse kicks the other guy, right? Is that the right interpretation of what Paul's saying in Philippians when he's in prison and he's talking about when things are good, when things are bad, I, I can conquer, I can do all these things, whether things are good or bad, in Christ because he strengthens me to endure? Am I more than a conqueror because anything that comes against me in my life turns around and makes me more comfortable, makes me happier? Think back to these crowds that are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This wasn't just a short little parade. This would have been a long time. I mean, the eyes were fixed on Jesus. The same eyes that only five days later would switch their acclamation from Hosanna, Lord save, to crucify him. That's a gap of five days. How quickly a crowd's perception can be changed. Bruce Milne, who's a Bible commentator that I look at every week for the Gospel of John, he says, the coming of the king means the usurping of our rebel kingdoms, our rebel kingdoms. Not talking about the usurping of other nations, of the United States or Russia or Ukraine or others. He's talking about our rebel kingdoms. He's talking about the fact that humility doesn't naturally draw praise from our hearts because our hearts are guarded by rebel kingdoms. Milne goes on, it's the denial of our sinful independence that comes from the coming of the king. We must face death before we face life. This is, of course, what Jesus is off to face. He's not off to face the throne. He's off to face the cross. Are you this morning willing to release your hope for your sinful independence? I mean, would any of us even admit to that, right? Like, all this past week, have I been functioning at all as though I have independence apart from God? 
Well, no, none of us would say that. None of us perhaps would even think it. But we function that way. We may look to Jesus and say, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Yet in so many times at the place of our hearts, we're really saying, save me in the way I would like you to be saved, which basically subjects you to my kingdom and not me to yours. Are you willing to release hope for your sinful independence? Are you willing to admit with the disciples that we just simply forget the cross so much of the time? That we don't live every day in the shadow of it, in the light of the empty tomb? That sometimes we live as though Jesus has been defeated, that he's not really worth following in this area of my life or that? Are we willing this morning to realize that we care more for the things that we feel we need saved from that are temporary? Save me from the Roman occupation. Save me from King Herod. Save me from poverty. Save me from mounting gas prices. I mean, I know some of you drove by a gas station today and went, oh, it's going down. Praise the Lord. That wasn't the wrong thing to do. But would you praise the Lord if it was $6 this morning or 7 or 8 What if it got up to $1,000 a gallon? Does that change what Christ has done at the cross? Does that change his triumph in any way? Think back to the war horse and the donkey. Which one better shows your posture before the Lord? Is it, I'm an American, and just like GW before me, I'm getting up on the big white horse, and I'm going to triumph. I am in charge. I'm taking control of my destiny. I want my best life now. Or does Christ humbly coming on a donkey, not losing any of the triumph that he truly will gain at the cross and in the empty tomb, does that better picture your life? So now we come to the third part of the sermon, the Christ, the part where we need to repent and believe. Christ's glory reveals the truth about humility, and it welcomes us to share in his triumph over our sin. See, the key for the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus, the key for them understanding true triumph as Jesus was in this moment was the glorification of Jesus. And understanding not just that, that overarching idea of triumph, but the humility of it. They needed to see his glory to understand his humility. Now, those things seem to be opposite to each other, but when we come to the cross... And we see the humility of a man who is hung up on a piece of wood without any clothes, without any care for his, his physical life. When we see him as a substitute for us, we see the humility of what Jesus has done. Therein unlocks the glory of what he has done, of why we sing to him. Why we bow our heads, why we open our words, why we do everything that we do for him is because we've seen who he really is. John again tells us in John chapter 1, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That unlocked for the disciples at the cross. It unlocked at the empty tomb. It unlocked 40 days after that when the Holy Spirit came and gave life to each one of them. The interpretation of the Pharisees, the world has gone after them. As in so many other places in the Gospel of John, they said more than they knew. Of course, their definition of the world was wrong. It wasn't that 
all people, every person was going to follow Jesus. But it is true to say the world has gone after Jesus because all peoples have and all peoples will. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, all peoples will come before the throne of Christ one day and sing to his glory, proclaim his goodness. The humble Christ wins a glorious victory at the cross. He has a worldwide 2,000-year and running impact on the world. And I wonder, what have your prideful efforts, what have your rebel kingdoms accomplished in comparison to that? What have mine? Listen to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. There in John, the same author of the book that we're reading right now, you can imagine we're talking about John kind of having the light bulb turned on a little bit when Jesus was glorified. He's like, the donkey makes sense now. Imagine him now seeing this vision of heaven. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Josephus tried to count them all, 2.7 million. John says, at this moment, a great multitude no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, truly seeing the completed victory of Christ. That's where you belong, Christian. That's where you're headed. You will have a a palm branch in your hand. But you won't be saying Hosanna. You won't be crying out for salvation. You'll be crying out because of salvation. Verse 10, John says, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is our final destination. That is why we sing this morning, Come, thou almighty King, help us thy praises to sing. That's why we sing, Crown him with many crowns. We're invited to come see the wonderful, merciful Savior. Who on earth would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of man? Riding in on a donkey? He's the Savior? This is why we come and sing to one another, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Let us cry out Hosanna, because though we are saved from our sins, we long for the completion of our salvation at the moment that Christ returns. So it is right for us this morning to say, Hosanna, O Lord, save. Come and make this world right. Bring your kingdom here. So does the humility of Christ prompt you to that kind of praise? Because he goes from riding in on a donkey to riding in on a white horse. He goes from this multitude crying out for salvation to a multitude beyond number crying out because of salvation. If, you don't, if you're not prompted by his humility this morning to praise him, then see his glory and marvel at it. You will only understand it through his humility. You'll only experience the true triumph of Christ if you embrace the humility of Christ. We need to accept the invitation. We need to obey the command to repent and believe. Christ has been slain for sinners. He's been risen so that we could be justified by his blood. As Zechariah prophesied in chapter 9, that's another thing. In that chapter, it's so wonderful. He talks about the blood of atonement even in there. I mean, you don't get better. Okay, maybe I maybe shouldn't say this, but like there are a few passages that hit with Old Testament fulfillment the way John 12 does with Jesus literally riding in on a donkey. If you think that God doesn't fulfill his word, I wish you could talk to one of those guys that was there and saw it. So what do we do? 
What's the completion? What is the way that we walk in the complete victory of Christ by his spirit? We ought to rejoice in and follow the humble Savior in his glorious victory. We are those, if we are in Christ, we are those who are called to be the ones following the one on the donkey. I mean, if today we had somebody paraded around on a donkey, people might point and laugh. But then there's also people following the one on the donkey, thinking that he is something that perhaps the world might say, no, he's not really that thing. So what might be four steps of humility and triumph that we could embrace this morning? First, I'd like to offer you to believe the message of the humble Savior, knowing the path to true triumph is one of real humility. Believe the message of the humble Savior. And if you've believed it for years or days or months or weeks, believe it anew this morning. Let humility be the grid to your understanding of true teaching and false teaching. Somebody comes up and, and says, like, hey, I want to teach you something from Scripture. I want to tell you about how wonderful your life can be and, and how Jesus can get rid of sickness and pain and brokenness and all those things will go away in an instant if you just have enough faith. Let the humility of Christ on his way to the cross and at the cross be the grid through which you understand true teaching. Secondly, in your relationship with Christ, cry out to the humble Savior knowing he welcomes all who come to him for sanctuary. All who need a safe place, a refuge, can cry out Hosanna to the Savior. Because he does care. He cares about us in our normal, everyday struggles. That's part of why he rode in humbly, bringing peace. If you believe the message of the humble Savior, if you'll cry out to the humble Savior, would you thirdly measure your triumph over sin with the triumph of the humble Savior, knowing that his victory was sure from eternity past. Measure your triumph over sin according to his triumph over sin. Because we feel weighed down by it. We feel defeated. We feel that we can't overcome the same old temptations, the same old struggles that plagued me 10 years ago. They're still right here laughing at me. Let your first priority be to say, Lord, I believe you are triumphant over my sin, and if I'm in you, then I can share in that triumph as well. In yourself, what about with others? Following the one on the donkey means that we have to offer an attitude of humility to those where humility might just be out to lunch. Where you might come across people who it doesn't seem like they even have a shred of humility sometimes. Like all they can think about is themselves and no one else could possibly be right about anything. This humble Savior does not invite us to say, hey, I know Jesus, so actually I'm right about everything. But he calls you to put away your war horse. Come in peace, in humility. And you might have to do that again and again and again. And those relationships with those people where it seems there's no shred of humility, it might feel like you're just banging your head against a brick wall over and over and over again. But do it. Because Christ is enough for you. He, in his humility, went to the cross. If you can measure the triumph of Christ's sin and, and rightly understand your own in light of it, then you can rightly understand what you owe to another person in love. That person may never change, but it doesn't change the charge for you to be humble always. It is not worth it for us to stoop when we're tempted. And it's certainly not worth it when we're faced with other humble people 
to get on the war horse then and trample over them. Let those people in your life that are humble be examples to you. Let them be the ones that you say, all right, that's what Jesus looks like. I need to look like that too. And then lastly, if you've measured your triumph over your sin according to Jesus' triumph, if you are crying out to the humble Savior, if you're believing his message, lastly, would you proclaim the glory of the humble Savior? Knowing the world will hear this message and your humble participation is called for. One of the things I think about a lot as a pastor, since we're talking about humility, (laughs) I'm just going to say it all, all this stuff share my sermon notes with you and all that kind of stuff. That's so personal. One of the things that comes to my mind so much is that when things are going on, when we're doing an outreach, when we're, we're, we're having a discipleship group, when we're doing something as a church, I never want anyone to feel obligated to participate in anything. I would only want anyone to feel overjoyed at the opportunity if it's available to them. And one of the things that I care about in your life is that when you face Christ on the last day, that like we talked about last week, that it will be as though you who were running a marathon would fall on your face at the finish line and say, Lord, I have nothing left in the tank. I did everything you called me to do. I, I spent my life for Christ. That's worth it, church. It's worth it to follow the humble Savior to that extent even. Non-Christians, people that you know that don't know Jesus, they're looking for triumph. They're looking for the white horse rider. They're not looking for humility. But when they see it, it's striking. I know because when I see it, it's striking. We're going to sing this song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Today, you may have opportunity to stop your ears up to certain things in life and take a break, and maybe you need to. Maybe there's also an opportunity for you to lean into this matter of humility or in your own heart. I'm not calling you to go out right now and just start knocking door-to-door evangelism or doing some hyper-spiritual expression of your devotion to Christ but to examine your heart because that's harder. If you think it's hard to go knock on a door and say, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? It's actually harder to deal with sin in your heart. So let's make that our true priority. And let's bow our hearts and set our hope fully on Jesus so that we, along with the rest of the world, might go after him. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that points us to the death, the resurrection, ascension to heaven and return of Christ to come to the gospel, the good news. Lord, may we not dismiss that as we try to understand your word, but through what Christ has done, would you reveal to us his glory and his humility so that we might follow him, that we might share in his triumph. Thank you for it in Jesus' name.